0: I want to. Uh, I want everyone to uh, pat yourself on the back, go ahead and pat yourself on the back right now because you're here on December 27th, a Sunday after Christmas, which when I was an associate pastor, it was the one Sunday they would let me preach because it was called Cannon Sunday because you could shoot a cannon off and not hit, hit anybody in the sanctuary. But you are here in the sanctuary and you're online and we're delighted you're here with us. Uh, I hope that uh, Santa came to your house. Did everyone have Santa? So, yeah, I think uh, he missed my house. I ended up being Santa, so that was a joke. All right, so my, my son Jacob said, what am I getting for Christmas? I said, college tuition. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing about Christmas, the thing about Christmas is, you know, it depends on, on uh, where you're at. And with COVID-19, uh, people have not been in a good place. And the, the thing about Christmas is Christmas tends to turn up the volume on whatever you're going through, right? So if you are if you just had like a new baby or you got new grandbabies, man, you're just, Christmas is awesome, it's joyful. But if you're going through a time of grief, it, it turns up the volume on that. Can you relate? Yes? So whatever you're going through, Christmas tends to turn up the volume. And so what happens when a Merry Christmas becomes a messy Christmas? And I'm going to just lay out for you that the very first Christmas was actually a very messy Christmas. I love the Christmas story. I love the memories and traditions I have. I mean, I grew up going to, you know, Air Force bases where my mom played the organ. We would go on Christmas Eve. We'd listen to my mom. My dad always said, hey, tell your mom she played good, which we did. Because if we didn't, we got in trouble. We'd go home. We'd open up one gift, wait for Santa the next day. They, my parents would read me the Christmas story and, from Scripture. And uh, it was, it's an awesome night. And I always associated the sights and smells and sounds of Christmas as being merry. Can you all relate? Yes? But then I got to reading about the Christmas story and I got to reading um, uh, about a messy Christmas, and we can actually know this from a chapter that, we, that you probably don't read very much. It's Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. How many of you even know what is in Matthew chapter 1? Anyone? All right, Sandy, I bet, I bet she does. I know Sandy knows the Bible, so I bet she does. But, so Sandy, don't give it away, all right? Don't give it away. So here's five things that made the very first Christmas messy. A census was declared. Now in order for you to get your head around this, just think about the times you've been to the Department of Motor Vehicles. Anyone, anyone here ever say, I cannot wait to go to the DMV? It leaves much to be desired, doesn't it? Sight, smells, everything. And worse, this first century you know, census required people to travel to their original hometown. How many of us have run away from our original hometowns as far as we could? Now imagine going back to your DMV at the hometown, okay? Uh, no, thank you. So census was declared, that made everything messy. Everybody had to travel, Mary and Joseph. And then there's the fun of holiday travel. If you think your holiday travel is difficult, try traveling four days prego on a donkey. Uh, did I mention you are pregnant? Oh, the sights and sounds. I, I remember when Renee went into labor in California, we had to drive. It was during rush hour. We had to drive an hour with the AC on in the way to the hospital. It took an hour, not four days. Manger labor and delivery. Imagine delivering a baby in a manger. I have two kids. I was present at each one of their births. We were in the hospital. We had doctors. We had nurses. We had technology. Not once did a sheep come in the room. Not once. I mean, imagine the shepherds. Uh, I can imagine... The shepherds there, it was, it was messy. And then you have the shepherd visiting hours. We know that angels led several shepherds to the manger where they found that six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. That was a joke for the movie. I don't know if you remember that movie, but they didn't all have hand sanitizing stations that we take for granted. Instead, they had sheep. I wonder if Joseph was stressed trying to keep the sheep away from the baby. I just wonder. And then finally, the, the uh, other thing that made it messy, the eight day circumcision. Enough said, enough said about that, all right? Okay. All right. My point is, is that oftentimes around Christmas, we recreate the nativity scene, right? And it's beautiful and it's clean. And, you know, there's baby Jesus. Um, But I think we have made it into this glorified petting zoo. And it was very, very messy. It was not that way. The very first Christmas was anything but neat, clean, and tidy. It was a messy Christmas. Now, one of the reasons the Jewish people struggled to believe in Jesus was because of the way he he came as a baby not as a king I mean they were asking if God is God couldn't he have found some room in an inn couldn't a vacancy be created at the, at the Bethlehem Motel 8 couldn't he have delayed the census a few months couldn't he have allowed uh, Mary to have the baby earlier um, why did God not clean up the story and here's what Most scholars believe, and what I believe, is that God allowed Jesus to be born into a mess because it represents his willingness to enter our mess. Somebody say amen. Amen. Yeah. Our lives outside of Jesus are a mess. They look nothing like the polished marble manger scenes that we put up on our fireplace mantles. The manger puts Jesus at the center of a mess, not a masterpiece. Jesus came to a manger because Humanity needed to be rescued. Not from a a sanitized petting zoo, but from a filthy, dirty stable. It was a mess just like us. If we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that our life looks way more like the first century major scene than we really wanted to. Now, you all look good here. You showered, you put on deodorant, which we really appreciate. We encourage that. But we know, if we're honest... Our souls and our lives, our personal lives, our spiritual lives can be quite messy. Our thought life can be quite messy. Amen? And if you struggle uh, in this, just imagine that God is saying to you, I'm not afraid of your mess. Jesus didn't mind the mess of the manger. He doesn't mind our mess either. He came into the mess to save the mess, a mess like you and me. Now, some of you may not quite understand, so let me take this a little bit further. On June 5th, 1978, there's actually a tragic story. There was a seven-year-old boy named Martin Turgen. this true story, and he slipped off a pier and fell into the Prairie River in Canada. There were a dozen adults who were on the pier with him. They saw him struggle, he could not swim, and he drowned right in front of them. Not one jumped in to save him. When they asked the bystanders why they didn't jump in to save him, they all said, well, just upstream, there's a plant that dumps raw sewage into the river. So the water was dirty and dangerous to your health. So nobody jumped in to save Martin Turgan. What a sad story. And sometimes People view God this way, that God is sort of like an onlooker standing on the pier and and God looks at us and maybe God says, look, I'm not diving into the mess of your life until you get out of that putrid river. I'm a holy God. So clean up your act first and then I'll accept you and then I'll embrace you and then I'll love you. You see this attitude all the time. You invite people to church and they go, oh, well, the walls would just come crumbling down. Oh, I just wouldn't be accepted at church. Oh, I'm just, my life is too much of a mess. Oh, I've been an addict or I, I've had an affair or I, or I had an abortion or I had all these other things in my life. I'm just too much of a mess. But you'll notice if you read Matthew chapter one, that God does take a plunge. How many of you have read Matthew chapter one besides Sandy? We know Sandy's read it. All right, a couple of you. Matthew chapter 1, just to tell you what it is, it's a genealogy. It's a list of names. Most of them unpronounceable. So, what you do is you say them really, really fast, and people think you know how to say it. That was a joke. Because it's genealogy, it's a portion of scripture that a lot of people overlook. It's not really read in public very much. Um, people don't usually read it unless it's part of one of those read the Bible into your plans. Nobody's ever set it to music. Nobody's memorized it. It's a long list of names. It begins with Abraham. It goes from David. And it ends with, guess who? Jesus. That's always the right answer. It ends with Jesus. In between, there's some names we recognize. There's Jacob, Solomon, Jezaphat, and many more we've never heard of. How how many of you have gone around saying the name Hezron, or Azur lately? Anyone? The structure of the genealogy is very simple. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, one name after the other. And it's a listing of the generations of the Hebrew people from the father of Abraham down to Jesus. And it's fascinating, right? It's just everybody says Matthew chapter 1. No, they don't. It's a genealogy. It's sort of like the story of the man who was asked to write a review of the phone book. Here's what he said. Great cast of characters, weak plot. (laughs) If you're familiar, if you've ever read the King James Version, you remember the word begat. Remember that? Okay, instead of the phrase father of, Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and so on, and this strange word gives rise to a lot of different interpretations. One day, a little boy came home from Sunday school, and he was excited because he got to memorize the lesson. His mother asked him what he learned, and he said, I learned all the forgot's of the Bible. So what do you mean? You know, Abraham forgot Isaac, Isaac forgot Jacob, and Jacob forgot Judah. But the genealogy in Matthew chapter one establishes what kind of Messiah the Son of God will be. And that's why it's important. That's why it's in Scripture. First of all, it's amazing for God to call us his people. That's amazing to me. What a compliment. God wants us. But notice also this disturbing side of the verse in Matthew. You see this. God will save his people from their sin. Now Matthew was written to a Jewish community. Understand this, each gospel writer wrote to different communities. Matthew was a Jewish community that had become Christian and so they were struggling with how do we maintain our Jewish heritage and now we're Christian. And so if someone joins the church, do they have to be circumcised? Can they just get like a secret decoder ring instead? Those were real issues. And so Matthew is writing this to a Jewish community, and they would have been shocked. When, when Matthew's community read chapter one, they would have been shocked. They were shocked. They would have been shocked by the idea that this Messiah king, would, they thought, well, he's here to save other people from the sin of others, not their sin. But the name of Jesus doesn't just mean God save us from them. This is very interesting. The name Jesus also means God save us from ourselves. Because I have found in all of my problems there's one common denominator, me. You notice that about your life? So Jesus' job is to save us from our sin, our stubbornness, our hearts, our oppression, our lack of love, our hardness of hearts. Sin is a serious issue, and God takes initiative to deal with it. Once for all, God plunges into the the river and mess of our lives. In verse 23 of Matthew, there's another key name for Jesus, Emmanuel. Literally translated, it means with us, God, or the with us, God. It's a powerful name. We should not weaken it by saying, in Jesus, God draws near to us. No, it means that Jesus is God with us. As I said on Christmas Eve, God is here. Now, if you study the names in Matthew chapter 1, and I have, it's almost as if God has put together a rogues gallery. And we don't know everything about every person on the list. We really don't. But the ones we do know about, nearly all of them, had notable moral failures on their spiritual resume for instance, Abraham lied about who his wife was, Sarah. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob was a cheater. Judah was a fornicator. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh was the most evil king Israel ever had. And on and on and on, their names are on the list of Jesus' family tree. This is not a list of plastered saints. Some weren't saints at all. The best of these men had flaws, and some were so flawed, it's impossible to even see their good points. How does it show the grace of God? Simple. It shows the grace of God because these people make up Jesus' family tree. The idea, the point of this is to say, when you look in the mirror and you say things like, and I've heard people say things like this to me in my office, I got an email this week from someone who said this. Well, I don't think God loves me anymore. I've made too many mistakes. I'm talking to a person right now who's dealing with terminal cancer and they're not sure they're gonna be forgiven because of some of the things they've done. And my message to them is, oh yes, you are forgiven. Just look at Jesus' family tree. If you think you messed up, just look at the tree. This is supposed to give you hope. Someone say amen. Amen. (laughs) I mean, we got a murderer on the list. We have a fornicator on the list. We have an adulterer on the list. We have a liar on the list. We have a deceiver on the list. Think about them. Very great sinners. And here's the remarkable thing about Matthew chapter one. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. The remarkable thing, and I realize this is a little bit of a teaching message. the, The list of Jesus' family includes four unusual women. Now, the fact that it includes four women is remarkable because when Jews made a genealogy in biblical times, they normally did not include women on the list at all. They just traced their family tree from father to son. But Matthew chapter 1 includes four women in Jesus' family tree. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all of them very unlikely people. With the exception of Ruth, none of them possessed what you would call exemplary character. Let's think about these four women for a moment. Tamar, incest, immorality, feigned prostitution, a Gentile. Rahab, harlotry, lying, deception, a Canaanite. Ruth, a woman from Moab, a nation born out of incest. And Bathsheba, most known for adultery. But she also had Solomon. Solomon. Four unlikely women. Three are Gentiles. Three of them are involved in some form of sexual immorality. Two are involved in prostitution. One is an adulteress. All four in the line that leads to Jesus Christ. Huh? What? Is there a mistake here, pastor? Why would God include women like this in the list? But it's not just women. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, they were quite great sinners too. Matthew's writing this to a Jewish community. He's writing this to a group of self-righteous people. And God put this in the scripture as a message to self-righteous people. Who did Jesus most have a problem with during his time in his life? Self-righteous people. The Pharisees. The whitewashed tombs who look so pure on the outside, who followed all the laws of the the land and followed all the laws of the Torah and 690 additional commandments on top of the 10 commandments. But Jesus said, you're a whitewashed tomb because you don't love people. And you see this message throughout Jesus' ministry. Think about the time when they caught the woman in adultery. Now they're supposed to drag the man with the woman to caught in adultery, but they conveniently left him behind. But they drag the woman out there and Jesus is there and they're trying to trap Jesus, right? These self-righteous people. We caught her in adultery. First of all, how did that even happen? They must have been looking for something. It's kind of awkward, right? And then second of all, they're like, "Okay, Jesus, we know the law of Moses now. It says we can stone her. So go ahead. Can we stone her, Jesus? You're the, you're the rabbi. You're the teacher of the law. And if he agrees and he lets them stone her to death, he violates the law of love and forgiveness and the law of God. And so Jesus says, oh, great message, right? The only, those who are without sin, go ahead and throw the stone. And the only one who was qualified to throw a stone didn't, right? Jesus. So he went after, always going after self-righteous people. Religious pride. There's nothing worse than religious pride. Matthew was written, again, to Jews. Many of the leaders, the Pharisees in particular, were self-righteous, judgmental towards others, They truly thought they deserved eternal life. What a shock it would be to read this genealogy because it's filled with liars, murderers, thieves, adulterers, harlots. Not a pretty picture, not a clean family tree. That list was a stinging rebuke to the kind of judgment that you find in self righteous communities. So, this means Jesus was born not a sinner, but into a sinful family. He came from a long line of sinners. So if you're a sinner, congratulations. But is it to focus on their sin? No, it's to focus on the grace of God so that God's grace might be richly displayed. Someone say amen. Now, if you come from a family like this, you can't exactly boast about your heritage. I remember growing up, my, my mom used to, I, I'd come home from high school and my mom would like check my pupils and make sure I hadn't been drinking, you know? And then she would say, your great-grandfather, he was the town drunk. I'd be like, oh, what? A, that's a great legacy, mom. Thanks for telling me that. But she didn't want me to be an alcoholic. So you, people say, well, can a prostitute go to heaven? Can an adulterer go to heaven? Can a murderer go to heaven? Can a liar go to heaven? You better say yes. Because Rahab and David, they're in the line of Jesus. They're going to heaven. Rahab was a prostitute and liar. David was an adulterer, a murderer. When you read the stories of these four women and on the men on the list, you're not supposed to focus on the sin but on the grace of God. The hero of the story is God's grace. His grace shines in the darkest of human sins as he chooses flawed men and women and places them in Jesus' family tree. All right, let's get a little personal. Yeah, now everyone's getting a little uneasy. How many of you have got someone in your family tree and you're a little slow to recognize them as being in the family tree? (laughs) You're like, hmm, you know, I'm not so sure. How did they get here? What happened? This reminds me of the Christmas classic that I watched this year. I watch it every year. It reminds me of a certain character. you remember Cousin Eddie and the Griswolds? Cousin Eddie is one of my favorite characters. I love when he's about to go sledding with Clark. Some of the lines in this movie are cracked crack me up. He says to Clark, I don't know if I'd go sailing down a hill with nothing between the ground and my brains but a piece of government plastic. Or when he's emptying the RV into the sewer and he says certain words that, so and so is full. Or that there's an RV, now don't go fall in love with it. Here's my point we all got a cousin Eddie in our family. If you can't think of a cousin Eddie in your family, that means you're it. You are the cousin Eddie of your family. <laughs> and Jesus understands the way you feel. Jesus came from a desperate reputable family. His family tree was decorated with notable sinners. Jesus knows what it's like to have relatives who embarrass you. He knows all about a dysfunctional family situation. But the point is, no matter what your past is, Jesus is not afraid of that. He's not afraid of a mess. He can save you. Any murderers, Reading these words prostitutes, adulterers, any liars, cheaters, any angry people, any thieves, any hypocrites. Good news. No matter what you've done in the past, Jesus can save you. If a prostitute can be saved, you can be saved. If a murderer can be transformed, you can be transformed. If an incestuous person can be saved, there is hope for you. This is actually good news. It's joy to the world. I think of Bill Moore, if you don't know the story of, of William <laughs> Neil Moore, you ought to know the story. When he was just a young man, he got high, and he committed a murder. He got sent to prison, got sent to death row. And from death row, he, he, he just was resigned that he was going to die, and life was meaningless, and... And he had a chaplain that came and visited him and the chaplain came and visited him and the chaplain revealed to him the genealogy of Jesus and said, Jesus is not afraid of your mess and Jesus can forgive you, a murderer. And he did something remarkable. He wrote a letter to the family and apologized. And the family wrote a letter back to him and said, we're Christian, we forgive you. And this was the beginning of Bill's transformation and for 16 and a half years, he was on death row. He actually became a chaplain of death row. Churches actually sent people to him for counseling. Can you imagine? You come to me for counseling. I can't help you, but there's a guy on death row that can. Because he could. And now, Bill Moore is an ordained minister. The state pardoned him. He preaches. He teaches. He does prison ministry. Imagine that but he's a free man, forgiven. But the, but the passage that saved his life was Matthew chapter one. The chaplain showed him what was in Jesus' family tree. So this means there's hope for the hurting. Now, to be honest, I preached on Matthew chapter one years before. And I remember a man going through a difficult situation, a difficult divorce, and he said to me after the sermon, I'm glad to know somebody else comes from a broken family. Because that's what Jesus comes from. There's a lot of dysfunction in Jesus' family tree. So if you think there's a lot of dysfunction in your family, join the club. A lot of brokenness and pain. He's not afraid of it. I hope you won't skip Matthew chapter 1 in your reading. I would even challenge you to read it. It's an unlikely list of unlikely people. But it may be one of the greatest chapters of grace in the Bible. In these forgotten names from the past, God turns the spotlight on the holy grace of fallen men and women through their lives. And you see what the grace of God can do. It can change people and move them from their past to their future. So Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. They call his name Jesus, for he shall save people from their sins. He didn't come to make you religious. He came to save you from your sins. He didn't come to make you pious. He came to save you from your sins. He didn't come for moral reformation. He came to give you salvation, which again, for Jesus, does not just mean you get to go to heaven when you die. Salvation means abundant life, holiness, wholesomeness, that same words, here and now, right now. You can have it. The kingdom of God is within you. It's within your reach. Abundant life, now and forever. So this is supposed to be good news Thank you, Sandy. So go home and read Matthew chapter 1. When anyone talks about the cousin Eddie in your family, know that Jesus came for him too. And he came for you and for me. And there's no one, there's no one that has done something so horrible that God doesn't continue to love them. And that's the good news. Because... Scripture says God is love, and if God is love, God cannot go against God's character and quit loving you. God never gives up on you, never quits loving you, no matter where you've been, what you've done, what your family tree is, all those things. God's not afraid. He doesn't wait till you clean yourself up. He loves you just as you are, and that love transforms you. And makes you different. And that's how we change. I am looking forward to 2021. I'm looking forward to a better year. It's going to be a year of the comeback. We're going to come back. Amen. Amen. <laughs> we are. We're coming back. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be prophetic for the first time in my ministry ever. But 2021 is a year of the comeback. Amen. Let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks for this time to come together and consider Jesus' family tree and why he was sent. When we look at that family tree, Lord, it gives us hope because we see ourselves in those people. We see our same mistakes, the same sins. We see a messed up heart and a messed up life. We see our thoughts that are often scattered. We see that we need your grace. And we give thanks that God, you so love the world that you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to save the world. And you are not afraid to be born into a family of of long line of sinners because that's all any of us are. And it shows that you're not afraid to work through imperfect people because that's all that there is. Imperfect people like me and you. So God, help us to realize that if you can work through people like that, then you can work through us. You can bring salvation through us to others, as we tell our stories of how you came for us in the midst of our messy lives, in the midst sometimes when we're drowning in a river of sin, you sent Jesus to be our savior, unafraid, and that's the good news, that you came to save us from ourselves, not so that we'd become self-righteous, but so that we'd focus on your grace and your mercy. Lord, often our sins seem so great and we struggle with the idea that you could love us. We struggle with the idea that we could trust that you love us. But help us to remember, as Brendan Manning says, our sins are like grains of sand next year mountains of mercy. And we give thanks for the birth of Christ. As we are still in this Christmas season, I ask God that we allow him to grow in us and live in us and let his love transform our hearts and our lives so that we might become more than our past. So we might become greater than we ever imagined we could be. We look forward to this next year, God. We look forward to your working through this church and through each of us. And we look forward to getting back to being a church. We pray for the vaccine to be effective. We pray for all those who are struggling with illness, we pray for health and strength and vitality, and we give thanks, Lord, that you love us. You love all of us. It's joy to the world. We pray this in the name of Christ who taught us as we say now together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our day of bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that is kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us at Grace Presbyterian Church. We hope and we trust that this message was a blessing and gave you much encouragement as you face today. At Grace Presbyterian Church, We are a church family that welcomes everyone who welcomes everyone, and we would love to welcome you. So please join us either online or in person. You'll find a community that loves God and loves each other, and we are blessed by other people joining us. So please come and join us at Grace Presbyterian Church.